0: Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort. Great to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast, Transit Unplugged. This week, news and views. Transit Unplugged is heard in over 100 countries worldwide and has been ranked by Chartable as one of the top 200 podcasts in the world. On today's episode, we're gonna cover headline news with a focus on some of the violence that we've seen on transit systems lately and what some possible solutions could be. Then we're gonna do An interview with our newsmaker today, Rich Sampson, who's executive director of the Southwest Transit Association, focused on all the latest news out of Washington, D.C. when it comes to transit funding, funding opportunities, and regulations. And then a look at the future of public transportation. All that on this episode of Transit Unplugged News and Views. You know, normally we like to take the the positive spin on transit and tell you about all the positive news, but there's been uh, a real severe incident that occurred here in the United States just this last week on public transit that I don't think we should ignore. And for me, it opened up Pandora's box as I started researching and seeing all the issues going on with transit systems around the country now here in the US primarily is where I'm focused on this show. And I wanted to share with you kind of some of the news of what's happening. You probably already know, but the New York City Police Department took a gentleman named Frank Robert James into custody without incident during the afternoon of April 13th, less than 30 hours after James reportedly and was suspected of opening fire on a New York City Transit end train. What they're saying allegedly is that James entered the MTA system at the Kings Highway subway station, boarded the end train, and around 8.24 a.m. Eastern on April 12th, he put on what was described as a gas mask and detonated two smoke grenades which filled the car with smoke, and then opened fire on the train as it was pulling into the 36th Street Station in Sunset Park. A total of 23 people were injured in the attack, including 10 who sustained gunshot wounds with none of the injuries at this point of this recording being reported as life-threatening. As people exited the N train in panic, an R train pulled into the station, and MTA employees are credited with quickly getting people onto the R train and evacuated from the 36th Street Station. According to authorities, James also boarded the R-train and traveled one stop before exiting the system. Terrible news, of course, to see that as uh, people are trying to uh, ride the train and get where they need to go and then have a terrible, tragic incident like this occur. It's not the only place. In a lot of the major cities in the U.S. now, there's been a reported uptick in crime on the vehicles. Let's take a look at Chicago. A month after police and Chicago Transit Authority, CTA officials, announced increased security On the city's transit system, a series of attacks highlights the challenges city officials face in tackling transit crime, according to an article in Mass Transit Magazine. In just over one week, at least five attacks that put people in the hospital were reported on or near the CTA, including a fight that led to a beating and stabbing outside the Roosevelt train station downtown, a shooting on a bus in Lawndale. According to Chicago police, they also reported another attack On a CTA train platform, the attacks come as CTA is grappling with spikes in violent crime and complaints that more riders are breaking rules that prohibit smoking, drinking, and other nuisance behaviors on trains and buses. Police and CTA officials in the month of March announced plans to address crime and rule breaking, saying they would be doubling the number of unarmed security guards and adding more police officers and supervisors to patrol the transit system including the busy red and blue lines with a focus on gang and narcotics crimes. In Chicago, the additional police were deployed in the early March announcement, and the unarmed security guards are in the process of undergoing training and being sent out. In recent weeks, the number of guards in the system have increased from about 150 a day to around 210 a day. According to John Eck, professor at the University of Cincinnati, who studies policing and crime prevention, he says it's too soon to tell if the strategy is working. Transit advocates and some union officials have called for other options, including rider input and a return of transit police and conductors. Violent crime is affecting transit systems across the country. In California, though, another issue is also going on there. Violent crimes on the system have jumped 36% in the last year on LA Metro. According to Metro data, with aggravated assaults, rapes, and homicides, rising for the second year in a row. And there's been some high-profile crimes involving involving homeless people that have jolted leaders of Metro. Earlier this year, a homeless person, they say with mental health problems, attacked Sandra Shells, age 70, an emergency room nurse and avid transit user near a bus stop by Union Station. She was slapped, pushed down, hit her head, according to authorities, in an unprovoked attack that killed her. County Supervisor Holly Mitchell, a Metro board member, told her colleagues, As it was reported in an article in the L.A. Times, the murder of Michelle exposes our shortcoming. She says people in cognitive crisis are often ignored and hardly reached. When we finally do make contact, sometimes it's a little too late. Metro officials in L.A. have closed the historic Union Station once a 24-hour operation overnight to stem the wave of people that go there to sleep, curling up in gardens and hallways, according to the article in the L.A. Times newspaper. One Metro board member who represents the downtown area pushed forward a measure to increase the agency's work with the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health so the crisis teams can respond to reports of people in cognitive uh, distress in the Metro in lieu of armed sheriff's deputies. Um, in March, a homeless person pushed a man from behind into the tracks on 7th and Metro. The victim suffered head injuries and fractured ribs. Inglewood Mayor James Butts, a Metro board member and former police officer, says he doesn't want the crime blown up and painted out of proportion to the actual number of crimes, but he admits these incidents hurt the Metro brand. He said, when these incidents that happen that are devastating to people and life-threatening, when they are broad-brushed in this, and this is a problem with the homeless and the system, you've lost. Uh, and so the agency is now looking for a consultant to come up with a strategic homeless plan Meanwhile, the board is pushing forward a $40 million initiative called Reimagining Public Safety that would add ambassadors aimed at improving riders' experience, elevator attendance for passengers, and an emergency button for riders. And this week, Metro is launching a cleanup campaign in the stations where riders will be reminded of common courtesy with posters and flyers. In Hawaii, after a reported increase in cases of objects being thrown at city buses, Crime Stoppers and Oahu Transit Services are asking for the public's assistance in preventing damage to vehicles. Since December, there has been more than 60 cases of criminal property damage involving Oahu Transit Services buses (OTS). Crime Stoppers said in a news release, "Surveillance videos are being used, and they're uh, concerned about it. And they're telling people to contact officials if they need assistance and to report crimes." And finally, transit operators and unions say, in another article in Mass Transit Magazine, say they've seen a spike in violence against transit workers since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, and workers complain it's hard to quantify that spike. But under the Federal Transit Administration's prior definition, a worker was considered assaulted if, for example, they had to be hospitalized for more than 48 hours, or they had certain fractures, severe bleeding, or damage to nerves, muscles, or tendons, or internal organs. The FTA also currently does not separate customer assaults from assaults by fellow workers in the National Transit Database, according to the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. But provisions in this year's bipartisan infrastructure law aim to change that. The provisions create a legal definition of assault as, quote, a circumstance in which an individual, knowingly without lawful authority or permission, and with intent to endanger the safety of any individual, or with a reckless disregard for safety of human life, interferes with, disables, or incapacitates a transit worker while the transit worker is performing the duties of a transit worker. It also requires transit agencies to develop a risk reduction program for assaults on transit workers. That the law creates a more specific definition of assault is important, according to Greg Regan, president of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. And he said that without the data, the unions have had to collect information via Google search or news clips. And they're outlining in the article a series of um, recent incidents that have occurred. Regan said transit operators aren't the only ones who've seen a rise in violence. Flight attendants are also reporting incidents of being kicked, punched, or groped. And you may have heard that the House of Representatives passed a bill by a vote of 339 to 85, this month that uh, would require all transportation modes to establish formal policies, training, and reporting structures on sexual assault and harassment, another effort to combat a a purported rise in hostility against those who work in transportation. John Costa, president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, representing more than 200,000 transit and transportation workers, said his union has worried about violence on transit operators for years. FDA Administrator Nuria Fernandez has set a July 31st deadline for agencies to begin work on transit safety plans and a December 31st deadline to complete them. The law requires the plans to be crafted by labor and management and be updated every year as long as the law is in place. The FDA spokesperson said, FDA will continue working with labor and management throughout the country to ensure these committees are created and that they are effective at protecting American transit workers, adding, it is unacceptable for the men and women who connect all of us to our communities to fear for their safety at work. So that's just a high-level overview of some of the incidents that have occurred recently on transit. It is an area of concern here in the U.S. Transit agencies are responding. We'll keep you updated as news develops.
1: After Paul recorded the news segment last week that the FDA had extended the mask mandate for flights and trains and other forms of federally regulated transit, Florida District Judge Catherine Kimball Mazell struck down the mask mandate saying that the Centers for Disease Control had exceeded their regulatory authority and not followed proper regulatory procedures in extending the mask mandate. Now, it's now up to various transit agencies, airlines, and airports to continue or end mask mandates in their facilities. Now, As far as Canada goes, according to the CBC, Transportation Minister Omar al said that Canada is going to continue its mask mandates on flights and trains for the near future. And that's it for the news for Transit Unplugged News and Views. Now, stay tuned for Paul's interview with Rich Sampson of the Southwest Transit Association, where they talk about all of the funding that has come from the U.S. federal government supporting transit agencies, what that means for the future of transit.
0: Great to meet with Rich Sampson, executive director of the Southwest Transit Association, known as SWADA or SWADA Nation, which I love. And uh, Rich, thanks for being with us today. You're calling in from one of your state's conferences. Yeah, I'm in Tucson, Arizona right now, Paul, at the uh, ASDA conference. And we are recording this just before Easter weekend so that we could give you the latest news on what's happening out of Washington, D.C. Rich and I were talking about doing this a couple of weeks ago. and We agreed, let's wait until just before the program goes live uh, so that we get the latest and greatest news. So there's been obviously a lot of good news when it comes to funding in public transportation, Rich, lately. Some terrible news out of New York City when it comes to transit just recently, which I covered before this interview on our on our news segment of the program. And then some interesting news out of Washington last week. So kind of like the good, bad, and the ugly, I guess, like the movie, right? Uh, yeah. About mask mandates and them continuing on public transit. It's like the only place where, well, whatever, we'll get into that in a minute. So so tell us some about your perspective as executive director. You're really tuned into what's happening in Washington. Give us the landscape, and then we'll dive in where you think we need to. Sure. Thanks, Paul. And appreciate you having
2: me. And, but you know, it's a blessing and a curse territory we're in right now. Of course, you know, we've talked about the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the IJA, which passed last year. And really that's set up the stage for basically everything Transit's wanted from a funding perspective or pretty close to it for the next five, five years. If you look at C- APTA or CTA or any national organization in terms of the funding request, what Congress and what became law was almost what we asked for. The problem was there wasn't any policy changes in the, that law. There was a lot in the House bill, and then the Senate moved real quick. So the great news is there's lots of funding available. People really recognize the important role transit plays in moving essential workers and keeping the our communities and the economy going during COVID. Uh, you know, we've actually done a real good job spending down the COVID relief bills from CRRSA and CARES and ARP. All those have been spent down at least 80%. The first one's almost totally spent down. So our industry has done a good job taking that investment from the emergency funding and getting it out into the communities. That was rewarded in the bill. So that's what's happened. What's happened now, and I guess it's past tense too, is the FY22 um, appropriations process is now complete, thankfully. It was a uh, a lot, a lot of work, and frankly, factors that were beyond our controls in industry to Essentially, our our items in the PROPS bill were done non-controversial. It was just an old log jam. So that that first year of funding from the BIL has now been appropriated, and FDA has the apportionment tables out uh, to all the all the systems. That's great because. Now the the agencies can get through the rest of the year knowing their their fundings intact is what they expected
0: and continue to maintain service and even start expanding. Can I ask you to pause right there? And I'd like you to, for our listeners around the world who maybe have different type of funding models, maybe explain how formula funds work in the U.S., under the 1964 Act and how you know, amended, and just a minute or two on that. That, that you know, yeah. the, in, in America, we have three layers of government. Like a lot of people do, we have the federal, the national government, then states, 50 states, and then local. And the federal government gives money down through the states a lot of times, or through metropolitan planning organizations, and spreads it out to transit agencies. And they do it by formula. Now the floor is yours.
2: Yeah, thanks, Paul. I, you know, the formula programs are. Serve different sized communities and different service types. So there's funding for large urban areas to operate fixed route service, and small urban areas too. There's funds for seniors and people with disabilities. There's funds for rural areas. All these are based on formulas, literally, that calculate how much a system or a region gets based on how the population or based on the type of results they've had previously. Those are formula programs. Then there's also competitive or discretionary discretionary programs that are in that bill that are essentially grant programs that are awarded for projects or for different types of um, focus areas. Those funds also increased. But how it works in the United States is Congress has to set a level of funding that's available first. That's called an authorization bill. The one we have right now is called the bipartisan infrastructure law. Then the Congress has to actually say, okay, now you have the money for this individual year for the formula funds and for the grant funds. And that's what just happened earlier, kind of about a month ago, is that appropriations process for most of the government went through, and that resolved the budget for this year for the federal government, from defense to state to everybody. And our funds for this year, fiscal, 20, fiscal year 2022, are now in place. So those those
0: expire on September 30th, because our federal fiscal year starts October 1st. Exactly. So this
2: gets us through the rest of this this fiscal year, not the rest of the calendar year. What's also happened now is President Biden and his administration have released their proposal for fiscal year 23. So kind of how it works for everybody around the world is the president and the administration will generally list kind of a proposal or a concept of that year's funding and how much, if the authorization level should be met, exceeded, reduced. In transit, we want to see them at least met, if not exceeded each year. So now the now we're into looking at fiscal year 2023. The key thing about this five-year funding bill is we need to make sure as an industry that each year we get that level of
0: funding that's been authorized in the bill. That's good. So that's a good, I think that's a good description, Rich, of how it all works. Now, what's on the table right now, there's a lot of competitive grant programs, right, that are coming out on the table? Yeah, that's correct. And there's some kind of big stakes programs that are, Included in that kind of a
2: a big portion of those are called the capital investment grants, which allow you to do major projects, whether that's build a rail line or a BRT line or uh, do station and infrastructure work or purchase a whole bunch of new buses, you know, and keep up your system. So those, the, the, the bus and bus facilities program is now out. They'll be rolling out the capital investment grants. They'll be rolling out all these different things that people have to apply to for a project or a certain specific need.
0: And then once they apply, it goes through an evaluation process at the Federal Transit Administration, and then awards are made. Yeah, that's how that works. And folks at the FTA will use various criteria, maybe established by law,
2: other times kind of in the in the program, to make decisions because there's a lot of funds, but there's not funds for everything that every system wants to do. So decisions have to be made. And right. this is where you know our members uh, in SWADA and transit agencies around the country need to be engaged on a regular basis in communicating with Washington, both their members of Congress and the FTA on their projects and what's important to them.
0: Are there any other funding issues you'd like to address today
2: from the federal uh, government? You know, I think the, the funding cycle just needs, the thing we hear time again is it needs to be predictable and then needs to be responsive to issues that are coming up. You know, we've Paul and I, we've talked about, you know, the challenge in maintaining drivers right now is a huge challenge. And while, you know, capital funding doesn't address that, we need to be able to make our systems run. And whether that means hire drivers or keep up the vehicle purchases, these are all
0: things that um, are included in the funding realm. That's good. I guess one final question for you, Rich, a big question. When it comes to rules coming out of Washington, a lot of folks were looking forward to potentially not having to have mask mandates on public transit, and especially on airplanes. And I know the Airline Association asked the administration to end it on April 18th. And even after, the American Public Transit Association representing transit agencies across the country, basically said, look, we're the last group, you know, in public transit yeah. that there's a national mandate. All 50 states have removed mask mandates, but they extended it for three weeks. What's the feeling there in SWAT a nation? I would say it's not very happy
2: about that. I mean, to the extent that we're being treated differently than the airlines or even Amtrak, which Amtrak is a cousin of the transit agencies, is really unfair. And you know, it's already hard enough to you're sacrificing con- convenience personally when you use transit. If there's barriers to making that as easy a trip as possible, people will find other options. And through no fault of our own, there's no data that suggests that transit is any less safe than an airplane or a restaurant, for example, a McDonald's, there's no consistency in the application. If it was across the board, it would be a different story.
0: Does the new rule to differentiate between like Amtrak and transit, the extension? Uh, not as far as I know. I think it's okay. still in the trains. But, you know, the other
2: issue is we're asking our drivers to be the enforcement mechanism often. When they have a really tough job to begin with, you know, driving, operating their vehicle safely, on time, doing all the things they need to do to be great professionals, then having to enforce mask mandates and maybe fare issues. It's a lot to ask when we're having trouble attracting drivers to begin with. And I know that's a major concern for our members here in the SWATA nation.
0: Yeah, I just covered a lot of that material in our news segment and how the unions across the country and transit agencies are concerned about an uptick of violence against drivers,
1: mm-hmm. against the
0: operators of our system, as are, you know, the airlines with their airline attendants. So very interesting. Any other news coming out of SWAT Nation you'd like to share before we wrap up our interview? You know, I just think it's going to be interesting to see some
2: of creative and innovative approaches in terms of flexible service, whether that's system redesigns coming up or, you know, looks at microtransit and different on-demand mobility you know, that's obviously not a new topic. Seeing how these pro- the federal programs and funding respond to that under this new bill, I think is going to be a real key issue and a source of innovation for our business over the next five, 10 years.
0: Excellent. Rich Sampson, Executive Director Swada. thanks so much for sharing with us today an update from Washington, D.C. Good to talk to you, Paul, as always.
3: Hi, I'm Alea Carey, a communications consultant who loves working with public transit agencies. You know, marketing isn't just about the things you can touch, like flyers and your passenger guide, nor is it just made up of things made out of electrons, like social media posts. Marketing tactics can also include other human beings. I'm talking about community gatekeepers, the people in your community who have the trusted opinion of your riders and potential riders. These are people like local college administrators or the folks who work in senior centers or manage large apartment complexes. These gatekeepers can help you get your message across to large audiences. How best to communicate with them? First of all, keep an up-to-date list of people in your community who work with large organizations and social service groups. Next, ask to meet with them. Could be a phone call, video conference, or in person. And share with them all that physical marketing collateral like your passenger guide and brochures. Finally, as time goes by, make sure they get your emails and press releases offer to share their social media posts on your platforms, and ask them to share yours. Together, you'll be building a relationship that saves you marketing dollars and gives you trusted access to groups in your community who need your services. If you'd like to talk more about communicating with gatekeepers or anything else related to communications and public transit, look me up on LinkedIn. My first name is spelled E-L-E-A, last name C-A-R-E-Y.
4: Hi, this is Mike Bismeyer, Regional Sales Director for Proterra, and this is Mike's Minute, where we talk about leadership, mentorship, and kindness with the hopes that will inspire you to pay it forward. I wanted to take an opportunity this week to leave you with two simple messages. First, as we come out of this past Easter's weekend, I hope you all had an opportunity to enjoy some time with family, friends, partners, loved ones, those that are special. A little time to reflect the simple things and to do something for someone else in need. Secondly, I have spoken many times during the pandemic about the everyday transit heroes, operators, and frontline workers that have kept transit moving. Well, unfortunately that came to light again this week with the horrific incident on the Brooklyn, New York subway. But I wanted to send out a huge simple thanks and kudos to all those who went above and beyond, reacted amidst chaos and ran towards it. Those who selflessly put their lives aside to save others. Thank you for making such a selfless difference. Again, transit operators, frontline workers, we couldn't do it without you. Have a great day. Kindness is cool. Thanks for listening.
0: Now we're on to the future of public transportation segment where we take a look at what's happening on my schedule this week of what's happening coming up over the next month or so in public transportation conferences that I'll be attending, opportunities for us to connect. Of course, send me a note on LinkedIn or send me an email at paul.comfort at trapezegroup.com. Was excited to speak recently at the Delaware DART Transit staff meeting to a group of 60 senior staff on post-pandemic leadership, and thanks to CEO John Sisson for the invite. It was a great meeting, and I can tell you that Delaware Transit is a a great system. They they're unique in that they're a statewide system. John reports to the Secretary of Transportation as CEO, and they provide transportation border to border for the entire state of Delaware. Even though it's small, it's a different types of systems. You know, in Wilmington, which is like a major city. They've got big bus service and you know urban service. Then they've got Dover, Delaware, the capital, with their own services there. And then they've got the famous beaches, Rehoboth. You hear a lot about President Biden going there sometimes. That's a famous beach we actually like to go to. My family does. It's a great beach. And then other beachside shuttles and trolleys and all kinds of things going on there. And then they had paratransit, border-to-border states, quite a system. They've gotten a great team there. It was great to be with them. Then, while you're listening to this, this week, I'll be in Miami at CoMotion Miami. John Rossant, the head, invited me to be a part of it this year on the media side. And we're going to be bringing our film crew there and filming an episode of Transit Unplugged TV with global mayors, leading technologists, public transport operators, venture capitalists, startups, and established players. The entire landscape of new urban mobility is again present for this most critical commotion gathering event yet. Two days of immersive and inspirational talks with demos and workshops will chart a resilient path forward for cities and mobility as we recover from the pandemic. I'm excited about some of the interviews we have lined up, including with Miami-Dade Transit CEO, Euless Cleckley, and Chief Innovation Officer, who is a good friend of mine, Carlos Cruz, who's also going to participate in our How Do We Get There segment. And so it's going to be fun. Hopefully, we'll have some political leaders as well as a walk with John Rossant through the trade show. So in case you're not able to make it, we're going to show you some of the latest and greatest innovations on an upcoming episode of Transit Unplugged TV. While I'm there, and then the next week, I'm happy to be making a presentation to sound transit leaders in Seattle. I'll be doing a presentation on various topics they've asked me to address. And then I'll be headed to Columbus, Ohio for the APTA Mobility Conference from May 1st through the 4th. There'll be a lot of events going on there with the companies I work with, including Trapeze and Vontus. And I look forward to spending time with you. If you have a chance to say hello, come by the booth, send me a note. We'd love to grab a cup of coffee with you if you're going to be at the Mobility Conference in Columbus. And uh, while I'm there, I'll be speaking to a class of, of Leadership Louisville. Uh, this is a great program. A lot of cities have leadership programs. I'll be talking about transit, what the trends are in transit, and i'll be doing this virtually to the class there in louisville kentucky thanks to Kerry butler for arranging the invite through louisville leadership louisville and then the ctaa expo is coming up the very next week in louisville and i'll be attending it with my friends from tripspark with their product tech showcase i'll be doing a book signing at the cta at the uh, tripspark booth on the first night as the as the trade show gets open at 6 p.m. come by the booth and get a free copy of my children's book public transportation from the Tom Thumb Railroad to Hyperloop and beyond. Grab a selfie if you want, and I'll be happy to autograph it to the children in your life. So lots of speaking engagements coming up and events I'll be attending. Hopefully, you can join me at one of them. We can say hello, and you can let me know what's happening in transit and mobility in your neck of the woods. Hey, thanks for being with us today on this episode of Transit Unplugged News and Views. And Every week, every Wednesday, we drop a new program. Hopefully, you've been able to make it over to our Transit Unplugged TV Uh, platform on YouTube and subscribe. The program that's up there this month is just phenomenal. It's a look at Palm Beach Transit. It's our highest quality technically program. It's broadcast quality. I think you'll love it. If you get a chance to watch it, it's only a half hour. Let me know what you think. Drop me a line. And if you want to have your city transit system and your city highlighted on a future Transit Unplugged TV show, just drop us a note and let us know right here at Transit Unplugged. Thanks, and stay safe out
1: there. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transit Unplugged News and Views and our guest, Rich Sampson of the Southwest Transit Association. Next week on Transit Unplugged In-Depth, we have Steve Poftak, head of MBTA in Boston. Should be a great interview. Paul recorded it earlier this year at the Smart Transit Conference. If you have a question, comment, or like to be on Transit Unplugged, feel free to email us anytime at info at transitunplugged.com. So until next week, ride safe and ride happy.